now we'll move to panel one. And panel one is basically going to be about the populist challenge to Fed independence. And our moderator, Allison Schrager, will lead the panel. She's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. So Allison, it's uh, all yours. Thank you. Um, I can't think of a better time to have this panel with uh, the announcement for Biden's pick of the Fed, which definitely has taken on more of a political tinge, as well as uh, this high inflationary environment that's happening at the same time, we're really revisiting the Fed mandate to include goals that I think a lot of people see as more political, um, such as economic inequality and climate change. So I can't think of a better time to have this you know, full day, but particularly this panel. And I'm gonna um, just completely sell everyone's illustrious bio short because I just wanna get right to the discussion. I'm just gonna give you their names and where they are, but I hope you will, um, look them up and be suitably impressed. Uh, first up, we've got Charles Goodhart, who is a legend. Um, I overlapped with him a bit at the Bank of England, and he is a legend for both research and policy. He is currently their Emeritus Professor of Banking and Finance, the London School of Economics. Uh, we have this co-author, uh, Rosa Maria Lastra, the Sir John Lubbock Chair in Banking Law at Queen Mary University of London followed by Carola Binder, the Assistant Professor of Economics at Haverford College. And finally, Christina Perijan Skinner, the Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School of Pennsylvania. Um, our panelists are gonna each speak for about 15, 10, 15 minutes, and then we're gonna open it up to questions. Just, I wanna give you some instructions because we wanna make sure we get your questions. So I'm sure you'll have many. Um, you can submit your questions via Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube using the hashtag CatoMonCon, C-A-T-O-M-O-N-C-O-N. Uh, and once our speakers finish, and I will take the first question because I get to as moderator, and then I you will uh, be I will get to yours. I promise. Although I imagine you'll have a lot, so hopefully we'll get to them all. So let's get started because we don't have nearly enough time to discuss this with the people that we have. So uh, I guess Charles Goodhart is going to get started and I'm curious what you have to say. Uh, thank you very much, Alison. Uh, but you only become a legend when you're dead. And I'm not quite there yet, I hope, anyhow. Um, but it's a great pleasure to follow on directly after Raghu Rajan. And I'm going to repeat quite a lot of what he said. Um, the longer that the inflationary pressures continue and the higher they go, the more that it seems that the Fed is going out onto a limb by saying that it's all transitory uh, and only temporary and it will all subside on its own. It's quite difficult to see how the current inflationary levels will move down at any rate over the next few years until perhaps energy prices start declining again in the spring. Now, when you get inflation at about 6%, and assuming that it remains roughly in this ballpark for the next few months, it's going to be inevitable that workers will try to protect their real wages by asking for more money to catch up with the inroads that inflation is already making on them. And businessmen will also want to raise their prices in order to protect their profit margins. And both of them are in a position to do so 
uh, given the relatively high level of demand and the pent-up savings that are available for expenditures in the US at any rate. It's a somewhat easier story uh, in Europe, um, but effectively we're already entering the field in which the wage price spiral is beginning to spin. Now it may be as Raghu said, nobody knows what the future is really going to bring, that it will all subside sufficiently fast um, that no action needs to be taken. But the likelihood is beginning to appear that that is not going to be the case. And when the Fed decides to pivot, what will it then do? If it decides that it has to pivot, to move to a more tightening regime, it will already have lost quite a lot of its credibility. And many in the Fed and elsewhere claim, I think mistakenly, that it is very easy, they know exactly how to deal with inflation. My concern is that they will then raise interest rates really quite sharply. And as Raghu has already said, there is a concern about financial dominance in that the leverage ratios of the public sector, the public sector debt is already so high that when interest rates get raised, it's going to mean that the public sector is in the worst position in terms of its overall deficit. Again, the years of easy money have raised leverage in the non-financial corporations to such a high level, uh, and asset prices, particularly housing prices, are such a high level, that any sharp and sudden, abrupt tightening of monetary policy could drive us into financial disturbances, indeed even to a recessionary financial collapse, which would do nobody any good at all. That means that we are effectively left if the authorities don't overdo the reaction when they finally decide to pivot, we're going to be left with a situation in which interest rates, nominal interest rates are rising, but not rising so fast as to prevent inflationary pressures remaining above the target level. That will mean that the Fed's credibility uh, will be reduced, uh, it will also mean that their profitability will be sharply reduced as nominal interest rates rise, even if real interest rates remain negative. And as their profitability gets reduced, and perhaps they turn to making losses, and at the time when they are paying out large sums of money to commercial banks because of uh, the floor mechanism uh, for managing monetary market operations is going to lead to a very considerable uh, populist challenge uh, to the future uh, independence and indeed the mechanism by which central banks operate uh, at, at, at present. I think one of the things that I really would like to add is the argument uh, which Raghu sort of made in part uh, that we know how to deal with inflation, that Paul Volcker wrote the book. The problem was that Paul Volcker took his action at a time when the public sector deficit, uh, public sector debt ratio in the US was barely more than about a third or 40% of what it is today, when the leverage rates were much lower, 
when asset prices were not so frothy, again, to use his words. And that means that the, the financial stability concerns about any abrupt shift from the very expansionary policies of today to what the Fed might come to feel to need when it decides that it has to pivot, uh, when the inflation doesn't go away in the course of 2022, uh, could be very disturbing indeed. And that is going to put the, the Fed, as indeed it will put most other central banks, but perhaps particularly the Fed, because the uh, fiscal expansion, monetary expansion, um, uh, and inflation have all been much greater in the US than in most other countries, it will put the Fed very much into the firing line, uh, where it will be attacked on all sides. It will be attacked on one side for not controlling inflation, and it will be attacked uh, on the other side for raising interest rates sufficiently uh, to cause uh, economic problems getting in the way of the continuing sharp recovery. And at that point, I think I shall pass over uh, to Rosa. I hope that I've um, kept roughly to my timetable. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, a part of our paper in which we talk about how the expanded role of central banks as crisis managers in the context of the global financial crisis, the pandemic and now climate change uh, has affected the status of central bank independence, in particularly considering the expansion of QE. The events of the last few years represent a departure from the previous central banking model in line with the Timbergen rule of having a central bank with one primary objective, price stability, and one main instrument, conventional interest rate policy. This central banking model became widely adopted around the world from the member states that signed the Maastricht Treaty in the European Union to a large number of countries that revised their central bank laws, often based on IMF recommendations. The credibility associated with this model served countries and the global community well, as we discuss in our paper, and also facilitated accountability. But such credibility vis-a-vis -vis both the political authorities and financial market participants needed time to develop and is fragile. I will not talk so much about the Fed, as I know that Christina will mention it, but the Fed is sui generis since it has several unranked statutory objectives. In our earlier paper, we consider the implications of the rebound financial stability objective in the light of the global financial crisis, when central banks became, in the words of Mohamed El Enria, the only game in town. And in the revised paper, we actually focus our attention on the role in the pandemic and on the new climate change agenda. Central banks recognize climate change as a source of systemic risk to both price stability and to financial stability. The question is not if, but how and who. What is the best distribution of tasks between political authorities and depoliticized agencies with narrower mandates? In March 2021, in the UK budget, the Chancellor announced that the Bank of England's mandate should support the government's efforts to make the UK economy greener and achieve net zero emissions by 2050. The bank has said, and we quote, that it will adjust its approach to corporate bond buying to account for the climate impact of the issues of the bonds we hold. But not only is the new climate change goal for central banks controversial, 
but also the tools to achieve the new objective are, in particular when it comes to market allocation, picking winners and losers through green QE. Issues of distributional justice, we argue, belong to government, to the political authorities, not to central banks. And we should also be wary of further expanding the central bank balance sheets via QE, be that green or brown. The ECB is also looking into the climate change agenda from the perspective of its mandate. Like the Bundesbank, the ECB was granted independence in the pursuit of the primary objective of price stability. But the ECB was also given a secondary objective to support the general economic policies in the union. This secondary mandate, which was forgotten or neglected for quite some time, has actually been the subject of much discussion during the recent strategy review of the ECB launched by President Lagarde in January 2020. But while the primary objective is streamlined, the ECB secondary objective is broad and discretionary and includes employment, growth, climate change, environmental, social sustainability, even child protection. Lawyers in the audience, you may want to read Article 127 of the treaty for the functioning of the European Union in conjunction with Article 3 of the Treaty for the European Union to see how broad this secondary mandate is. Further, in the EU, we have uh, this connection between jurisdictional domains. We have a centralized, depoliticized monetary policy, and we have decentralized, politicized fiscal policies, which makes it even more difficult to reconcile the two objectives. But this difficulty is notwithstanding, the current ECB leadership is adamant that it should aim to achieve both objectives. The debate now focuses on the instruments, not so much on the objectives. Given that monetary policy objectives were a blunt tool, targeted intervention via micro and macro prudential supervision, we argue, may be more effective in addressing the climate change challenges than monetary policy. For example, the ECB as bank supervisor can play an important role in ensuring that banks identify and manage the risks that arise from climate change. And prudential authorities can design a stress test based on four scenarios so that banks can then judge what capital and liquidity requirements should have in the face of the threat to stability. But at the EU level, the main locus of the authority for mitigating the sustainability risk should be at the political level, at the level of the EU institutions, council, commission, and parliament, and member state governments, which, unlike the ECB, control legislation, taxation, and expenditure programs, and have overall responsibility for regulatory frameworks and direct economic interventions. And of course, not to be excluded, or private sector market participants, who are the main agents for implementing governmental policies, and who are the source of most of the risk, and therefore have the greatest potential for managing those risks and steering the economy to a more sustainable path. Thus, a broadened mandate, like the one that we consider in our revised paper, lead to repoliticization. Otmar Ising, former ECB chief economist, who will be speaking later today, in oral evidence to the House of Lords, told the European Economic Affairs Committee that central banks have come closer to political decisions during the financial crisis and now in the context of the pandemic. To that, I would add, and now even more in the context of climate change and sustainability. Politicians have always learned to worry about events. The events, my dear boy, events that UK Prime Minister Harold, Mac Harold Macmillan saw as, the def as defining political activity and response. Let me quote that at the time of the 1959 election in the UK, the Times observed 
people are prosperous, prices are steady, and employment is low. But then in May 1962, soon after the economic climate had deteriorated, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan admitted to his cabinet that his dream of keeping in the air the four balls of full employment, stable prices, a strong pound, and a balance of payments in surplus was doomed to fail. Anyway, back to the model, to the central banking model. Like releases at the mass, political authorities have been able to resist the inflationary sirens under a depoliticized monetary policy. But how does one reconcile this traditional central banking model with the new political realities, the new political, the new monetary frameworks, both at the ECB and at the Fed, at the time of resurgent inflation? Are we witnessing a repoliticization of central banks and with it a decline in independence? And is a new social contract in economic policy making emerging? And if so, should it be translated into legislation? Politicians, in particular populist leaders, can easily class with expert central bankers if they pursue broader policies such as climate change, fighting crisis or pandemics. Indeed, as the mandate becomes broader or multifaceted, encompassing a variety of goals, well, the Fed already has a variety of goals, which can be conflicting at times. We can lead to green inflation if we don't have it already. But with that, what happens is that the consensus that surrounds this goal, this persistability goal gets questioned. And with it, the importance of independence as an instrument to achieve the goal diminishes. What is certain is also that with expanded mandates, central banks require commensurate measures of accountability. And that's a large part of our paper both the old paper and the revised paper. Accountability is not simply an add-on to justify independence. Accountability, ex ante and ex post, is a constitutive part of the design of an independent agency in a democratic system. An accountable central bank should be judged for the reasonableness of its actions by parliament, by the public, and by the competent courts of justice, though I know that in the US monetary policy decisions are not justiciable. They are in the EU, and indeed the Court of Justice of the European Union, has assessed the legality of the ECB decisions during the Euro debt crisis. In the UK, the inquiry that led to the publication of the 2021 House of Lords report is entitled QE, a dangerous addiction, question mark. It was, by the way, an honor to serve as a specialist advisor to the committee during the inquiry. And in this inquiry, the House of Lords questioned the potential politicization of the Bank of England. One, two, the effects of combining loose monetary and fiscal policies. Three, relationships between bank and treasury and your QE. Four, the risk to public finances and allegations of monetary financing. Five, the impact of QE on debt management and debt sustainability. Six, effects of independence, financial stability and wealth inequality. And seven, the future of QE. Clearly, a new intellectual edifice for accountable central bank independence is yet to be crystallized. Thank you very much. I have some slides, so I will um, go ahead and share those with you all. Are you able to see them? Hi everyone, it's such a pleasure to be back at Cato and in such a great lineup of speakers on such an important and relevant topic. Um, so 
So if we're going to be talking about central bank independence, I think we should start with Milton Friedman, who wrote one of the earliest essays on central bank independence uh, back in 1962. So um, as Friedman noted, there are political, um, so, so yeah, as Friedman noted, there are political objections to giving central bankers, as he put it, so much, so much power independent of direct political controls. He noted that there were arguments about economic or technical grounds that made it nevertheless essential to do so. But Friedman asked, is it really tolerable in a democracy to have so much power concentrated in a body free of democratic control? Now, as you may know, he posed this question rhetorically and his answer was negative. But in the decades that followed, as this question continued to be posed in academic and policymaking circles, a different consensus emerged that yes, it could be not only tolerable, but also desirable. And that the way you could justify central bank independence in a democracy was to set it up so that the goals of monetary policy are established by the political authorities, but the conduct of monetary policy in pursuit of those goals is free from political control. This consensus had at its foundation an emphasis on transparency as an accountability mechanism. As Zinsser and Eichengreen put it, as central banks have become more independent and freer to choose their tactics, transparency has come to be seen as a mechanism enabling the public to assess whether the actions of central bankers are consistent with their mandate. So we're here today partially because this consensus is on shaky grounds. The Great Recession and financial crisis increased public reliance on central banks, but simultaneously eroded trust in them and in authoritative institutions more broadly. The pandemic is also leading to a time of reckoning about the role of technocrats or experts in democratic society. As populist movements gained ground in the post-recession years, we saw lots of commentary speculating on how these movements would threaten central bank independence. Lucretia Reisland wrote in 2017 that populist bull, unelected technocrats wielding policies that have political and distributional consequences may as well be waving a red cape. And here are two example headlines from the Financial Times and The Economist warning about the threat of populist attacks on central banks. So as our keynote speaker Rajan puts it, central bankers with their PhDs, exclusive jargon and secretive meetings are the ruthless global elite the populist nationalists love to hate. A common thread of most warnings about the populist threat to central bank independence is a presumption of a deep-seated antagonism between, um, between technocracy, here embodied by central bankers, and populism. This antagonism, I think, is worth questioning. So here I'm showing you the cover of a fascinating recent book called Technopopulism, The New Logic of Democratic Politics by Christopher Bickerton and Carlo Acetti. These political scientists argue that we cannot understand the contemporary political move moment if we stick to this opposition between populism and technocracy. Political competition in advanced democratic states today is increasingly ordered around appeals to both the people and to competence and expertise. Far from clashing with one another, these appeals are combined in multiple and complex ways. They add, even though appeals to the popular will and to competence are often rhetorically deployed against each other, there's also a deep, deep affinity between them, which consists in the fact that they're both unmoored from the representation of specific values and interests within society, and therefore advance an unmediated, unmediated conception of the common good. Um, 
so this techno-populist age is arising out of dissatisfaction with representative technology and its institutions. And importantly, under techno-populism, populists do not reject technocratic expertise, but instead rely on it to translate their causes into policy. So their book mostly focuses on techno-populism across Western Europe, where it has taken a variety of forms, but there are some common features that we typically observe. One is the highly contested role of experts and expertise. Policy debates take the form of my expert versus yours. There's a breakdown of trust in official information and institutional authority, which leads to appeals to new forms of so-called expertise from below. And finally, policy debates become highly spectacularized and confrontational with a strong emphasis on personalities and personal characteristics of the people involved, which you might traditionally expect from populists, but not so much from technocrats. Now, my argument is that this techno-populist logic can help us understand central banking and monetary policy today. We can observe these features in both the pressures that central banks face and in how central bankers respond to these pressures. And I'll give you a few examples. So first, presidential pressure on the Fed was more blatant and explicit under President Trump than his predecessors, most notoriously on Twitter. But this one example tweet, for example, um, it, it's the language has this nationalist populism in it, but the president is also appealing to his own expertise. And of course, it's highly confrontational. Where is the Federal Reserve? Pressures on the Fed come not only from politicians, but also from other parts of the public. Um, even academic think tank, academic and think tank economists on Twitter have this growing role in the monetary policy discourse. And the arguments you see on econ Twitter, if you hang around there, have this interesting way of mixing appeals to competence with appeals to the people and have a surprising emphasis on the personalities involved. Um, these techno-populist features are mirrored in recent discussions about monetary and inflation from both sides of the political spectrum in Congress too. Um, here we see the technocratic appeal to expertise combined with an appeal to the people or millions of Americans. And we also quite explicitly see the contested nature of expertise and the new forms of expertise from below, in this case regarding inflation. But now let's turn to the central bankers themselves. So earlier this year, um, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly asked on Twitter, what is the real unemployment rate? Not 6.3%. How can we know? Look around. So see the contested nature of expert knowledge, the um, appeal to expertise from below, the recognition of low trust in official information. Similarly, Chairman Powell recently followed some discussion of economic statistics by noting that these encouraging statistics were reaffirmed and given voice by those we met and conferred with at their Fed Listens events. And other researchers have documented how the language um, used by ECB officials has grown increasingly populist and charismatic and have pointed in particular to the change in mission statement of the ECB to our mission is to serve the people of Europe as particularly telling. Just to show you, um, we can see how the front page of the ECB website has changed over the years. This is how it looked in 2014 um, versus now. The big picture of President Lagarde, I think there's a techno-populist emphasis on leaders' personalities and their, their need to establish themselves as the people's expert. The New York Fed website has undergone similar aesthetic changes. Central Bank's website, speeches, tweets are all part of their communication strategy. 
Overall, I think we can describe um, the past few years as a new wave of the communications revolution in central banking. The first wave was a transparency revolution from mystery to transparency, as I put it in a title of a conference I went to at the National Bank of Ukraine a few years ago. And again, to quote Denser and Eichengreen, who've done so much work on central bank transparency, they um, explained in 2010 that, um, that this transparency as a mechanism for democratic ability is effective only if the central bank is transparent about its decision, only if those deciding monetary policy cannot claim that their monetary policy decisions are in fact in the public interest for reasons that, they, that only they understand. But this new wave is not about transparency to allow people to understand. When um, Neil Kachkari took office as president of the Minneapolis Fed, he made it clear that communication with the public was not about getting people to understand and all about trust, because they're not going to understand the nuances of what we're talking about. They need to trust us. It's about getting people to trust that the decisions are in the public interest for reasons that only they understand. And this is the exact techno-populist claim. <laughs> So here's one of my favorite headlines about this new wave of central bank communication. Reggae, puppies, whatever it takes, central banks want attention. They want it directly from the public, not from Congress. They want it so that they can appeal to emotion and especially to anger to get people to trust them as our experts, to hand over discretion to do things outside of the democratic process that we are angry that our elected officials haven't managed to do. And, and we can see that President Kashkari really means this about responding to economic anger and frames it in a traditionally populist manner in terms of the elite versus the people. If I just show you the Minneapolis homepage right now, it's literally about as the rich get richer. So there's this combined populist technocratic appeal that we get from central bankers as they try to gain public trust. And it's quite different from trying to gain trust just by consistently, competently, transparently pursuing and fulfilling their mandate. So John Cochrane has written that trust and independence must be earned by evident competence and institutional restraint. But a popular movement wants all institutions of society to jump into the social and political goals of the moment, regardless of boring legalities. And Christina Skinner and I and our great team of research assistants gathered data on around 5,000 working papers published by the Reserve Bank since 2005. We found that the share of papers featuring topics like inequality, race, gender, or climate change as a topic has increased dramatically over time. The second part of Cochrane's quote says that these boring legalities, these constraints on central banks are essential for functioning democratic society, for functioning independent technocratic institutions and institutions incidentally for making durable progress on those same important social and political goals. So Christina and I wanted to look into this too to see what people actually think about the Fed getting involved in these kinds of social and political goals at the moment. And we, we did an online survey, we asked respondents who they thought should be responsible for various policy areas, elected officials, the Fed or others. And there are really interesting divides where, for example, 17% of college educated respondents, but almost zero respondents without a college degree, want the Fed to be primarily responsible for climate change. We see similar heterogeneity in other policy areas where people with a college degree want a more activist role for the Fed. And similarly, people who get their news on social media are more likely to want the Fed to be responsible for policies related to inequality, climate change, and even gender. 
when the Fed is communicating, say on Twitter, these college educated social media users who they're reaching, and these are the ones who are more likely to support a larger role for technocrats in the most politically salient policy areas. But they're missing a big share of people who are not comfortable handling, handing these things over to unelected officials. This not only politicizes the Fed, it also exacerbates democratic discontent, exacerbates the, the sense of failure of political representation. So returning to Bickerton and Achetti, they warned that a consequence of technopopulism is that increasingly atomized individuals are bound to get a sense that political representation is being hollowed out because political actors claim to represent the substantive interests of society as a whole in a direct or unmediated way. This is what central bankers are claiming to do. For example, the Fed adoption of average inflation targeting in August 2020. And there's a lot to like about average inflation targeting in theory, but by leaving a lot of ambiguity about how this average would be computed, the Fed essentially gave itself extra discretion about the goals of monetary policy. Now, how is this extra discretion justified or um, legitimated? Well, what Chairman Powell emphasized about these changes was that the Fed Listens events helped us connect with our core constituency, the American people. Um, so it's, it's exactly this claim to represent the people as a whole in a direct and unmediated way that is the populist appeal to legitimacy. And by the way, it's a really interesting word choice, um, constituency, which has several different definitions. But the first in Merriam-Webster is a body of citizens entitled to elect a representative. Federal Reserve officials are not our representatives. We do not elect them. Members of Congress are our representatives. They're the ones who have constituencies. There's something gone awry here, some failure of representation that is leading central banks to take on more discretion in exchange for greater responsiveness to the supposed popular will and to let such responsiveness be conflated with or even replace accountability. This will only have a ratchet effect. The more technocratic discretion central banks have, the more populists will rely on them to translate their causes into policy. Central banks will continue to be awarded greater discretion in exchange for greater responsiveness and will double down in their appeals to the people and to their own expertise in the hopes of preserving legitimacy. So where does this leave us? Is it really tolerable in a democracy? I think that it is getting less tolerable and points to a stronger case for rule-based monetary policy, such as nominal GDP level targeting. A well-defined and quantitative target clarifies the meaning of accountability and helps distinguish accountability from responsiveness. Reducing technocratic discussion in this way reduces the impetus to work through central banks to achieve a variety of policy goals that are best left to the political process. This is our best hope for, as Friedman puts it, converting monetary policy into a pillar of free society rather than a threat to its foundations. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, and a big, a big thank you to the organizers, especially Jim Dorn for the invitation to be here. I'm so delighted to be part of this panel with so many respected colleagues and friends. So to round out our panel, I'm going to talk to you about why it is that I think the law governing the Fed enables or at least incentivizes populism. And I'll try and pull together a number of the threads of the conversations and the presentations that we've heard so, so far. So in other words, the question that I've been asking is what are the structural sources of Fed populism that have been created by Congress and in turn embedded in the Fed's statutes? 
So let me first give you the context of how I'm defining and thinking about the populist threat to Fed independence, and then I'll flesh out this theory. So for all of the Fed's life, its main job has basically been monetary and economic stability. Yes, the Fed wears a lot of different hats, but pretty much all of its roles boil down to those two interconnected functions. And I think you can even put payments in there. But today, the Fed, like other central banks around the world, is being asked to be more activist by doing more and more economic engineering. So this is to say that central banks are being urged to use their policy tools to achieve these myriad social and economic goals that sit outside the traditional purview of a technocratic central bank that's focused on monetary and economic stability. So as we've just heard, right, the Fed is being pushed to address climate change, to address issues of inequality, and to digitalize the dollar, at least for some, relating to reasons of financial and economic inclusion. But these issues all pose questions that are polarizing. There isn't a real social consensus about what the state should do about these problems and certainly not about what the Fed should do about them. If there were, Congress would write new laws and give the Fed new goals to tackle climate change, mitigate inequality, or create a new digital dollar. But it hasn't. So there's developed this view that the Fed should just do it because Congress is gridlocked. The ends will justify the means. Now, in my view, exerting pressure in this way to do an end run around Congress is a form of popular pressure, albeit one that's being mounted by an intellectual elite, as you just heard from Carol Levinder. So you may have played the game when you were younger. You may have children that play the game, capture the flag. Well, I would argue that we're in a battle of capture the Fed, where those that would have the Fed go around Congress are seeking to seize control of the Fed. And one way that they're doing this is by attempting to create some creative interpretations of the law and to push those forward. So this is a question we should all be interested in. Why has the law itself enticed proponents of activism, these elite populists that believe they champion a social consensus, right, to attempt to capture the Fed? And what can Congress do to buffer the Fed against these encroachments in the future? Now, to be clear, I don't actually think there is, in fact, room for legal interpretation. I think the law is settled about what the Fed can and cannot do for now. So in other words, even if the Fed were to be captured, I don't think engaging in activism could be lawful under a particular interpretation of the law. But it's the very attempt to harness the Fed's mandates to try and capture it that's problematic in its own right and worthy of separate study. And I'm suggesting here that we can understand something quite interesting about the incentives to exert a particular kind of elite popular pressure by scrutinizing the text and the political economy surrounding various of the Fed's mandates. So as a starting point, basic constitutional and administrative law principles provide that the Fed is an agency. It's an agent of Congress. And like all agencies, it only has whatever power Congress delegates to it. So for each goal Congress wants the Fed to pursue on its behalf, Congress confers a mandate that's located in a piece of legislation. Now, since 1913, Congress has delegated its powers pretty broadly. It knows that it needs the Fed's expert hand to operationalize some very broad goals. 
But this relationship begs a question. What about the Fed's statutory powers makes it seem captureable? All right, so let's take a look first at the so-called dual mandate. This is the Fed's main monetary policy mandate. It's found in Section 2A of the Federal Reserve Act and gives the Fed responsibility for promoting stable prices and maximum employment. Now, in recent months, there's growing evidence of attempts or efforts to influence the path of monetary policy by capturing the employment arm of that mandate specifically. Now, the evidence of attempted capture is decently conspicuous. When the Fed announced its new framework of flexible average inflation targeting in August 2020, the employment arm of the mandate was described in a new way. The framing of that goal became one that's referred to as broad-based and inclusive. Now, this new framing of the employment mandate has been used to rationalize a suggested splintering of the employment mandate to focus on particular geographic and demographic groups that appear not to be faring as well as some others. Now, at face value, pondering ways to mitigate social and wealth inequality is a good thing by any measure. But as a rule of law and separation of powers matter, how should we evaluate an effort to capture the Fed's power to help some groups over others? Well, technocratic central bankers looking for evidence about distributive outcomes seems to sit quite uncomfortably with their apolitical technocratic core. After all, basic premises of economic policy instruct the central banker to focus on maximizing social welfare, but to stay out of thorny questions of distribution. And I think we can find something in the mandate's design that, again, entices these various efforts at capture. So for one, when the employment arm was inserted in Section 2A, that dual mandate, Congress made a very conscious choice to give the Fed a fiscal goal that was supercharged with pre-existing value judgments. So aspirations for full employment legislation were born with FDR. The cornerstone of his 1944 State of the Union address built up a vision for a new American fabric of society that focused on a right to employment. And an employment guarantee sort of goal was then incorporated into the Employment Act of 1946 and later evolved into the Humphrey Hawkins Act of 1978. Now, essentially, what this legislative history shows us is a steady march through time of an executive goal bound up in special interests like farmers, but continued resistance in Congress to truly make the executive, the president, responsible for full employment. So while the Humphrey Hawkins Act was being debated between 1976 and 1978, Congress amends the Federal Reserve Act in 1977 to finally give the Fed a formal price stability mandate, and it also then includes maximum employment. Now, given this political and legal context of the time, it's difficult to see the addition of the employment mandate as anything other than a fiscal goal that's been diverted from the president onto the Fed. Now, it also matters very much how Congress designed this mandate. Now, Congress coupled this employment goal with price stability, but it gave the Fed total discretion to assess trade-offs between the two goals and gave no instruction at all about which goal to prioritize and when. 
Now, asking central banks to pursue what is a bona fide fiscal goal disguised as a monetary one is perhaps the biggest structural vulnerability to populism that the Fed confronts. This vulnerability has remained dormant for many decades, but as you can see with the wrong political economy, it sets the Fed up for intense efforts at popular capture. So let's now turn to the financial stability mandate. So this is a conference about monetary policy, but we can't fully appreciate the popular threat to the Fed's monetary policy independence without glancing at the periphery to understand a similar phenomenon transpiring within the financial stability mandate. Now, financial stability risk implies a threat to bank solvency or some market disruption that could in turn threaten bank solvency and economic stability. That's how we justify emergency style liquidity facilities or even emergency loans from the discount window. And after 2008, we started to think about financial stability more systemically. But still, financial stability risk is focused on the quality of assets on the balance sheets of banks vis-a-vis -vis the capital that they hold that can absorb losses and buffer banks from insolvency. But there's evidence of capture here too. So the past year or so, we've seen attempts to expand the characterization of financial stability risk to support appeals to the Fed to use its regulatory or supervisory tools to combat certain new problems. Now, the signature issue here is climate change, and there certainly would appear to be some benefit to capturing this mandate. Characterizing climate change as a financial stability risk implies the possibility of higher risk weights for loans to brown companies, it applies new stress tests, whether they're exploratory or scenario analysis. Now, all of these measures would be significant burdens on industry and would also incentivize the redirection of capital allocation in the economy. Now, incidentally, combating climate change is also very high on the executive branch agenda. Like full employment, it is at least in significant part a fiscal or executive branch goal. And there's a mandate problem here, too, at the bottom of it all. So to start, the delegation of power here is very vague. Where is it exactly? Nowhere does the Federal Reserve Act give the Fed a financial stability mandate. Now, there's some implied responsibility in Title I of the Dodd-Frank Act, which established requirements that the Fed do stress testing, that it regulate and supervise non-bank SIFIs, and that it impose these heightened prudential requirements for the largest, most complex banks. But Congress did not supply a definition of financial stability risk in Dodd-Frank, and nor did it tell the Fed how to come up with one. In fact, it didn't ask the Fed to identify new financial stability risks at all. It gave that job to the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which presents separate problems for the Fed's independence, but that's probably a conversation for another day. So the power to define the financial stability risk of financial stability risk is completely unbound a Fed or an FSOC for that matter, that can identify new financial stability risks and then use that as a trigger to more tightly regulate or supervise certain industries is a tremendously attractive power for popular groups to capture to accomplish various policy goals without involving Congress. And after all, if there are no constraints on time or the hypothetical character of a risk, any number of things could be characterized as a financial stability risk. And ultimately, it's not so clear we can cordon off what happens in the financial stability side of the Fed brain from its monetary policy side. 
Once the Fed categorizes something as a financial stability risk, it's just a stone's throw from suggesting it implicates employment, hypothetically, or price stability, hypothetically, too. There are no legal checks preventing these moves. So the upshot of this mandate analysis is as follows. You know, the fact that there's some perceived ambiguity in the legislative mandates makes the Fed's power an attractive target for those that want the Fed to tackle certain policy goals without congressional instruction to do so. Our panel was brought together to discuss the threats that populism poses for the Fed's independence. So let me bring that home now. Congress, in fact, undermines the independence that it otherwise intends the Fed to have by drafting mandates that do one or more of three things. One, impose fiscal responsibility on the Fed because those jobs demand value judgments that only elected officials who are democratically responsive should make. Two, where mandates are drafted in a way that they are unbound especially in regard to their time horizon, because it's unclear then what can trigger the deployment of the Fed's tools. Or three, when mandates conflict with other existing goals. Again, how is the economic technocrat Fed supposed to make these trade-offs at any point in time? Losing independence makes the Fed subject to political pendulum swings, and it also creates knock-on effects for the Fed's efficacy. Fed leaders have to spend a lot of time warding this off, and it's also divisive and confusing to the public regarding their understanding and expectations of what the Fed can do legally and what it should do democratically. So what in the end can Congress do? Well, first and foremost, it should avoid creating plurality among mandates. Mandates need a hierarchy, especially if they're fiscal. And this is important as Congress considers whether to give the Fed a mandate for central bank digital currency. How will Congress help the Fed know whether to prioritize financial stability versus efficiency and access to retail payments? How to address the mandate of other regulators like the FTC and antitrust concerns? And how to resolve the conflict in pre-existing legislation like the Monetary Control Act, which prohibits the Fed from competing with the banking sector in the payment space generally. Now, all of this being said, we don't want to bind the Fed's hands too much in times of crisis. So the challenge ultimately will be how to delegate more specifically and sparingly while preserving Fed power to combat financial crisis. That work is to be continued. Thank you. Thank you all. That was interesting and incredibly disturbing. Um, but uh, I said, maybe, maybe we're turning a corner. Um, so I, we already have a bunch of great questions coming in and we have about 25 minutes to discuss them, but as moderator, I get the first one. So, um, you know, this doesn't necessarily address the regulatory concerns, but in terms of mandate, um, when I was in grad school, I, I learned that, you know, clear rules-based policy to some degree saved the Fed from political capture. And, uh, but then, um, forward guidance came into vogue which to me always sounded like it wasn't rules. It was really discretion dressed up as rules. Like we're going to follow a rule in the future is really discretion, not rules. So do you think, and it also forward guidance to me also introduced all these sort of weird mind games that we discussed. So, I mean, do you think forward go moving to forward guidance was a mistake and that moving back, moving to a more rules-based regime might inject some independence back into the Fed? 
at any any directed at all of you or anyone who has feelings about it. I can jump in here, I guess. There's when the Fed um, first moved to forward guidance after the Great Recession and financial crisis. There were several different kinds that they so that got. Um, progressively more rules-based. So they started by saying, we'll keep interest rates near zero for some time, really vague. Then they moved to um, calendar-based forward guidance and, and later to threshold-based forward guidance. So the calendar-based says, you know, until this date, we'll keep interest rates near zero. And then later it's until unemployment is below 6.5 and inflation still, expectations still remain anchored. And so the more, I think the more um, rules-based, the less discretionary it got, the more it was actually able to um, influence expectations and markets because people had a better idea of what they actually meant by it. But I did some research on forward guidance and actually found that um, people who kind of trust the Fed more because they use similar forecasting models as the Fed were more likely to believe that forward guidance. People who use very different models of the economy than the Fed, um, we're more likely to not think that forward guidance was credible in, in the sense that they thought the Fed would actually raise rates before their forward guidance, um, before their, their thresholds um, kind of suggested they would. So, you know, if the Fed has a more rules-based policy, um, then forward guidance sort of becomes less necessary, right? You don't need to tell people what you'll do in the future. You already have a rule for what you'll do in the future. Um, and to the extent that it makes the Fed generally more credible, um, then you know, if they were to need to do forward guidance, more people would actually um, believe that they'll keep their word. All right, um, I said we've got many questions, so we'll move on to that. Thank you. Um, Peter on Slido asks, what do the panelists think of a neutral Fed policy consisting of ending QE without reducing outstanding balances and widening the discount rate range, floor and ceiling, to allow for markets to set the base rate? Well, I'll take the QE piece um, from a sort of lawyerly perspective, which is sort of very much dovetails um, on the evidence that I gave in the parliamentary hearing on quantitative easing. I think generally it's very important for the Fed to have this elasticity of power, that QE remains as a so-called wartime tool, and that as soon as it's relatively clear that we're in economic recovery mode, that the Fed or any central bank for that matter quickly shift into their peacetime mode and pull back from quantitative easing so that there are clear lines around what quantitative easing is for and what it is for not, right? Because there was a, a, a danger for some time, right? That quantitative e easing too would be a tool that could be captured for deployment in, in various sort of these economic engineering projects rather than just combating the sort of immediate and, and lasting effects of a financial crisis. So I, you know, I think it's a positive step in the right direction that the Fed has begun to taper. And so that's sort of the philosophical stance on quantitative easing. And I'll use the, the leave the quarter question for someone else. Um, one question for you, actually, I want to follow up with what you said. 
you, you say it's it's a wartime, but isn't there a fair amount of discretion about when's wartime and when's peacetime? I mean, we're just starting to taper now. It seems like we've been in peacetime for a while. I think that's fair, right? I think there is an open-ended question, which I'm, you know, thinking about in other research too, about, you know, who has the power to declare an economic emergency. I mean, in some cases it's relatively obvious, right? When markets go into free fall, right? But you do want to keep those lines of accountability relatively clear and crisp about sort of who makes the decision about when to kickstart quantitative easing and for how long. Um, I think there, there has been a period of of months where the Fed and the Bank of England have been under quite a bit of pressure to pull back from quantitative easing for this you know, precise reason that, that you mentioned. And also just sort of as a practical matter, right? The central banks do need headroom to fight the next financial crisis. And so if it's not tightening, then it's gotta be tapering. Uh, Rosa, did you have something you wanted to yeah. add? Yeah, I just wanted to add further to what Christina was saying that uh, the question on quantitative easing and your follow-up is quite relevant because it's clear that with quantitative easing, central banks enter into uncharted territory and your central bank independence is something that it has not happened in the past. And I think, you know, that the volumes of, 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 of asset purchases are of such nature that in itself they can create a financial instability risk if they are unwound in ways that financial markets will react or will consider not to be credible. And what I think is interesting about QE, and I think is a warning going forward, is that it was introduced as a, a transitory transitional arrangement, to, going back to what is emergency, what is extraordinary times, or what are ordinary times, to unclog the bank lending channel in the economy. And then eventually it became a justification for different programs. And QE under the pandemic, there have been QE1, QE2, QE3. So what was supposed to be an extraordinary and conventional arrangement has become the new normal. And the, the amounts of QE are massive. You know, it's 40% of GDP in the UK, 32% in the Eurozone, 33% in the US, 106% in Japan. So there are very, very large amounts. Of, of, of asset purchases that are in the hands in the balance sheet of the central banks. And I think, you know, that in the same way as they enter QE without a clear knowledge of how far they were going to get into the game, and it has become really the game of monetary policy in the last few years, there is a real concern, a real uncertainty about the timing of this tightening and how far and how fast it should go. And, and that's why I was saying before that in, in terms of green QE, you know, when one talks about the climate change agenda, it's something that we should take with a pinch of salt because, you know, the balances are already huge and you don't want to overexpand what is already highly inflated balances in which central banks, I don't think, have real knowledge because it hasn't happened before on how they're going to unwind. And just a word about forward guidance. Your question before, I think, is so interesting because... So much of forward guidance is about communications. Sometimes we say it's a new instrument of monetary policy, but it's really a communication tool. And, and Carola was saying this thing, which was very interesting, made me think about the constituencies, no? When, when central banks are communicating or learning to communicate better, sometimes like rock stars with their constituencies. So I think, you know, forward guidance is not really per se an instrument of monetary policy, rather communicating about instruments and objectives of monetary policy. Thank you. Okay, did Charles have anything you want to say before I move on to the next well, question? Yes, um, I think with hindsight, if we do find that inflation is more persistent and interest rates have to go up, as I think is likely, uh, 
that QE will be considered to be, in retrospect, really rather a disaster because interest rates now are incredibly low, historically lower than they have ever been. And it would be enormously wise and sensible to have managed to have sort of fixed that into our system by borrowing for as long as we possibly could. While QE is in very simple terms, a mechanism for transforming long dated liabilities into short dated liabilities. So when interest rates start going up, we will find that the effect of that on public sector deficits um, and in, um, will come about uh, immediately. And forward guidance uh, is okay if you are talking about your reaction function. But if you're talking about what you were intending to do, you don't know what the future is going to be. Nobody knows what the future is going to be, not even the president of any central bank in the world. And if you don't know what the future is going to hold, you can't tell in advance how it will be best to react. Um, the, you've got to have some flexibility. And forward guidance either means that you become inflexible in relation to what happens, uh, or that it simply doesn't work and your forward guidance turns out to be inaccurate and then you lose trust. So you can always say how you might react under certain circumstances, but you never want to say exactly how you will react under any circumstance. Uh, thank you. Um, let's move on to the next question. Um, Anne on Slido asks, how is techno-populism taking shape throughout history? Is this a new development? I think this is for Carilla, because um, she had the uh, long discussion on the uh, wonderful statistics and upsetting statistics on this. Sure. I mean, I would mostly just point you to, to the book I highlighted by Bickerton and Achetti, but it's a, it's a fairly new phenomenon, like in the last couple of years. Um, in terms of it arising in say, political movements, mainly in, in Western Europe. Um, the authors of that book point to it from, as arising from like, a failure of representative democracy from the political parties, um, no longer really representing interest groups in society. Um, and I think as far as seeing the effects of it um, in central banks, it's also very recent. I mean, I. So I finished my PhD in 2015. I was um, studying central bank communication at that time. And even since then, I mean, I've had a big change of opinion about central bank communication and, and um, how central banks interact with the public because of this trend that I've seen, even like from 2015 onward, there's been a real big kind of change in the motivations for why central banks are trying to communicate with the public and how they're doing it. And I think, um, so So it's at least like within that time, it's after 2015, it's maybe after 2017, that I feel like things have taken a, a turn that is uh, not such a great idea. Okay, um, Ryan on Slido asks, does average inflation targeting hurt the Fed's effort to secure populist support? Wouldn't a rule that everyone can understand secure the most good faith from the American public? Um, I said, uh, I think anyone can answer this, but I'm curious what Charles has to say. 
I, there was a very good article by Willem Boiter in, I think, EFT a few days ago, uh, which said, in effect, that average inflation targeting was a disastrous policy, and the sooner it's abandoned, the better. And the sooner we forget it, the better. And within a few months' time, the inflation rate we've already got imply that average inflation target mean that the Fed would have to aim to undershoot their present target in future. No, I, average inflation target was, was brought in on the assumption that the Fed knew what was going to happen to inflation in future, and they didn't, and it was a wrong decision. And the sooner it's forgotten by all and sundry, the better. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not that pessimistic about average inflation targeting as Charles. I think the good part of it is that it is backward looking. It doesn't let bygones be bygones, meaning kind of bringing us back to your earlier question about forward guidance. The idea with, with forward guidance is like when things are really bad now, the Fed or the central bank wants to um, sort of boost the economy now by telling people that it's going to be even easier in the future than you know, it otherwise would want to in the future. Um, average inflation targeting sort of does that because when we have like low aggregate demand now, um, which means inflation lower than it otherwise would be, then that means that down the road, you're going to have higher inflation than it otherwise would have been. So it does that sort of same kind of thing that forward guidance is supposed to do. So that can be favorable. I, but I think that um, a better version of, of such a, a backward looking um, policy would be a nominal GDP level targeting because of what the, the person who asked the question said, it's easier to explain to the public. It's easier to say, we're gonna keep, um, we're gonna keep incomes growing on a stable path. I think that's easier for most people to understand. Inflation targeting itself, even before average inflation targeting was not that easy for people to understand. I've surveyed a lot of people about it. Most people just are not aware of it at all. They're not, also not aware of average inflation targeting at all. Um, but um, yeah, I think average inflation targeting, if there were more clarity about how that average would be computed and over what time horizon it would be computed, then it could be slightly better than uh, just normal inflation targeting. Would you, would you be happy with a situation in which average inflation targeting meant that the authorities had to go for a target below 2%? And that has frequently been the case in the UK. The UK, because of what happened to the, its exchange rate, had inflation above target for quite a long time. If it had had average inflation targeting, we'd have had to have targets below 2%. Now, would that have been sensible? I mean, if they keep, yeah, if you get into a situation where you're either above or below target for a really extended period, that's a sign that you're not doing average inflation targeting credibly, that you're not managing it well, right? So there's like average inflation targeting in theory and in practice. And um, I think, yes, if we do have uh, a long period of above target inflation, credibly convincing people that we're gonna have a period of below target inflation is a good thing for getting inflation expectations down quicker and getting inflation down quicker. But of course, it's not gonna be pleasant in the moment to have, um, below target inflation. Uh, and it's gonna be really challenging for um, you know, central bankers to manage to get low, but not low inflation, but not deflation. So um, 
so yeah, again, that's like why I prefer NGDP level targeting. Um, I think it's easier to implement and less of this, of this risk of, you know, how, how finely can we tune our um, inflation outcomes? And how would you deal with the fact that nominal GDP figures frequently get revised? Great advantage of CPI is it doesn't get revised. Um, and what's more, it comes out with a considerable lag too. It comes out with a considerable lag. Uh, yeah, it might not, so it might not be in GDP that's the, that's the most optimal target. You could have nominal wages or something else that's measured uh, at, at higher than quarterly frequency. Um, those revisions, um, I mean, there's, there's some evidence about the, the nature of those revisions, whether they, like, um, that becomes really important if you want to do in GDP level targeting. Um, Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how much I want to go into it right now. Maybe I. I think Christina and Rosa both wanted to to say something. So maybe I'll let them. One of them jump in. I was also going to be a bit skeptical about average inflation targeting, in the line not just of what Charles referred to and the article by William Bitter, but from the perspective of credibility. I think you know that it is not a clear rule. I mean, the, the, the beautiful wish of having a narrow mandate of 2% increase per annum in CPI is that it was clearly understood and therefore this narrow mandate around the world created a degree of credibility and also to some extent legitimacy. The problem as I see it with average inflation targeting is the because it's rather indeterminate, it lacks credibility. And I think I would agree with Charles, the earlier it is abandoned, the better. Yeah, I would just add to that and really sort of reiterate the message that Rosa is is making right now, which is, in, in my view, the problem with average inflation targeting is that it was introduced without any commitment about uh, sort of when tightening would happen, how far past 2% and under what circumstances would the Fed consider it, you know, sufficiently consistent with its goals to then tighten, right? So it was sort of an open-ended commitment to pursue average inflation targeting. So, you know, as the saying goes, the central bank is supposed to be the one in the room that takes away the punch bowl when the party gets going, but no one really knows, you know, when the party is going too much for the punch bowl to be taken away, which is a real departure from the system that we were used to with this clear 2% um, target. And also sort of going back to what I was talking about, my prepared remarks, you know, when coupled with the fact that we have this dual mandate with no hierarchy and no prioritization, it has created this door, you know, for some places to say, well, this is a subjective assessment. How far should we go past 2%? And we also have this employment mandate. So let's lean on that a little bit more and more and more. And I think, you know, you can just very easily lose sight of any kind of constraints. And that's the concern, right? And, and it's unclear if that's happening or not, but I think that's the, the possibility. Okay, so I think we have time for one, maybe two questions if this is answered quickly. This is uh, directed towards Charles, but if again, if anyone else has um, an opinion, uh, it was great having everyone discuss the last question with each other, feel free to weigh in. So Prof Professor Goodhart from uh, Peruska on Slido, please elaborate on your point on the wage price spiral that is already in evidence. And if you see differences between advanced countries and emerging markets in this regard. I don't know enough about emerging markets. So I think that there are many of them 
in a more inflationary condition than the advanced economies and countries like uh, Brazil, Turkey, take two examples. Um, I, I, the situation at the moment is that people who are changing their jobs, and an awful lot of people are changing their jobs, the quit rate is higher than almost ever, are getting much higher wages when they go into a new job. Uh, the wages for existing workers have not been changing that much yet. But now that inflation is so much, and rightly in the news at five to 6% or whatever it is, uh, they're going to feel, ordinary workers who haven't moved jobs, that they are losing ground, that they are actually suffering. And they're bound to react. And this is going to increasingly occur over coming months. It's bound to. I know. I'm, you know if, if, if your wage has been held down to 3% increase and prices are rising at 5 to 6%, you are worse off and you know it. And you are going to react. And with a shortage of labor, that is all that is going to happen. Uh, the wage price spiral is sort of maybe in its infancy, but you can see the dynamics that are going to make it begin to spin. And it's it's already entering into the system. Uh, does anyone else want to weigh in in the two minutes we have, or do we want to sneak in a new question? All right, let's sneak in a new one. Um, do we need to distinguish between the hard money populist criticism of the Fed from the easiest mon easy money populist criticism of the Fed? The former comes from fans of the gold standard or Bitcoin, while the latter comes from fans of modern monetary theory. And I, I, I think this is a useful question because maybe 15 years ago, I wouldn't have thought it was a very useful question. But Skrilla points out now, like what said on econ Twitter seems to actually influence monetary policy. So what I would have thought is these fringe ideas that we could ignore actually now, I think, are actually quite important. So I don't know if anyone wants to weigh in. It's a very good question. And I think a very proper question. I think populism can attack the Fed both if you like being too tough and being too easy on both grounds. And I think you're absolutely right. And it's, it, it is, it's an excellent question. Um, I, and populism is a much more complex phenomenon uh, than is sometimes made out. And there are very different branches of populism. Uh, but the, I think the point of the discussion, of the whole of the discussion of all the, those who've taken part, uh, is that the Fed is likely to be subject to much more populist criticism, perhaps from both sides uh, in future years than it, than it has been in the past. Yet to add, I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally sure that we would classify calls for a return to the gold standard as populist, but those also I don't think are, are it's not taken as seriously as something that the, the Fed could actually could or would actually do. Um, it is true that populism can come from the left and from the right, and that pressures on central banks more generally can come from both the left and the right. Um, but they do tend either way to be pressures for easier rather than for tighter monetary policy. Um, so I actually used a, a narrative approach to construct a data set about political pressure quarterly on 118 central banks, almost all the central banks in the world. And about 95% of the episodes I found of politicians pressuring central banks 
were pressuring them for easier monetary policy, whether or not that pressure came from the left or the right. It was more likely to come from populists and nationalists from left or right, but it was hardly ever for tighter monetary policy. And that's because whatever political party you're from, it's still expedient um, when you're in office to get looser monetary policy. Um, does Rosara Cristina want to weigh in on that before I wrap up? No, just to thank again the organizers, to thank you for moderating the panel, and to thank Jean Don and the Cato Institute for inviting us. Yeah, no, thanks very much. I'll just say 30, 30 seconds, I guess, on the question. I mean, the kind of populist populism, at least, that I've been focused on is the kind that specifically wants to subvert the rule of law by accomplishing sort of social or economic policy agendas by avoiding Congress. So I suppose in theory that could come from the left or the right, um, but it tends to not be about sort of things like returning to the gold standard, but rather sort of having the Fed enlisted in accomplishing things that Congress can't or won't do at the moment. Again, an upsetting note to end on. Um, but I want to thank all of the attendees for joining the panel. This has been phenomenal. Um, and we're now going to take about a 15 minute break, come back at 1130. I guess it's actually going to be a 13 minute break for panel two, fiscal dominance, the return of inflation moderated by Greg Ip, chief economics correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you again, everyone. I've really enjoyed this. <laughs>